0: Well, on April 10th, 1912, the largest ship ever at the time set sail. That is the RMS Titanic. And it's a story all of us know, especially after the blockbuster movie by the same name. We all know the tragic tale of the Titanic. It's become a part of American history and culture. In its day, the ship itself was a marvel. and It truly was the dawn of the mega cruise liner On board was a gymnasium, a swimming pool, multiple libraries, classy restaurants, luxury cabins. And we take all this for granted for uh, for today because even the cheapest cruise line has all of these things and more. But back then, this was truly revolutionary. Typically, crossing the Atlantic was a dangerous, miserable, cold, cramped experience. But now it was a vacation vacation. The Titanic departed on its maiden voyage from Southampton, England, to New York City, and it had on board some of the wealthiest people alive among its 2,224 passengers and crew. Everyone wanted to be a part of this moment when the unsinkable ship set sail. The Titanic had the most advanced safety features at the time, including a double hull and 16 watertight compartments. It was deemed the safest ship in the world, Truly unsinkable, and its captain, Edward Smith, who's even reported to have said that even God himself could not sink this ship. Probably not a safe thing to say. But maybe that's what makes this story so riveting. There's so much hype and hubris, but in the end, that's exactly what happened. The unsinkable ship sank. On April 14th, 1912, four days into its journey, at 10.40 p.m., look out. Frederick Fleet, spotted an iceberg dead ahead. It was a moonless night, and visibility was near zero in just the pitch black darkness. And by the time the iceberg was spotted, it was was too late. They tried to change course and reverse engines, but there was just no avoiding it. And the iceberg struck the starboard side and tore into the hull. The Titanic was designed to remain afloat, even if four compartments were completely flooded, but the iceberg breached five, and the ship was doomed. The captain gave the order to abandon ship, but this is where the real tragedy strikes, in that there weren't enough lifeboats for everyone. The ship had a capacity of some 3,000 people, but there were only enough lifeboats for 1,200. And to make matters worse, the crew was not handled or rather trained to handle such a disaster, but they launched most most of the lifeboats when they were not even half full. Of the roughly 2,200 passengers and crew, over 1,500 would perish. By 2.20 a.m., the forward deck dipped underwater, lifting the stern out of the water. 1,000 people were still on board at this point. And soon the stress on the boat was so great that it snapped in two, Air remained trapped in the stern, though, and it tilted almost completely vertically out of the water, remaining buoyant for a couple of minutes. But both sides eventually sank, plunging everyone else into the frigid 28-degree Fahrenheit water. Shock from the cold, cardiac arrest, and drowning claimed pretty much everyone in about 15 to 30 minutes. And, and get this point. Only 13 people were helped out of the water into a lifeboat, even though there was room for 500 more. And this fact shocks a lot of people. But there's something even more shocking about the sinking of the Titanic. And that is the fact that the captain and the crew were warned. Not once, but several times, the Titanic received radio warnings from other ships of a dangerous ice field directly in their path. On April 11th, they received six warnings from ships stopped or passing through heavy ice. On April 12th, they received five warnings, on April 13th, three warnings, and then on the day of April 14th, they received seven warnings. All of these messages were written down, logged, passed to the officers on the bridge. All officers, including the captain, were fully aware that in their direct path was a huge field of ice that contained icebergs. By way of illustration, one message came to the Titanic from the vessel Masaba at 9.40 p.m., just two hours before they struck the iceberg. And the message reads as follows, From Masaba to Titanic in latitude 42 degrees north to 41 degrees 25 minutes, Longitude, 49 degrees west to longitude, 50 degrees, 30 minutes, saw much heavy packed ice and a great number of large icebergs, also field ice, end quote. Every message was just like this, warning of icebergs and giving the exact coordinates. But every message like this was ignored. The captain and the officers never took action, they never changed course, they never slowed down. The whole journey, 22 knots, full speed ahead. And to be sure, these warnings were real. They were genuine. The danger was really there. After the fact, the vessel Carpathia showed up to rescue the survivors. And by daytime, her captain described the place as an ice field that included 20 large icebergs some measuring up to 200 feet tall with many other smaller ones around. So this was a serious danger. This was a serious ice field. But time and time again, the crew ignored the warnings. And why, you might ask? Why did they ignore all these warnings? Well, they thought nothing bad was really going to happen to them. They were convinced that their ship was unsinkable and they themselves, in turn, invincible. And furthermore, they were also motivated by money. They didn't want to stop. They didn't want to wait it out like other ships were doing. Every minute they were late to New York was money lost. Preoccupied with their greedy desires and convinced of their own security, they ignored all the warnings. And in the end, they were destroyed. Surely after they struck that iceberg and the freezing water started to rush through the hull, they all wished they had heeded the warnings. If only they had listened and changed course. But it was too late. They were meeting their demise. But how many people today are just like this? They're carrying on with their lives full speed ahead, living as they please while ignoring every single warning that comes their way. Warning, there will be a judgment. Warning, your every sin will be brought to light. And warning, you will be held accountable. And no one will stand in this judgment. All of us, every single person, is guilty before God, and faces his righteous judgment. There's no escape, but there is rescue. Your only hope then is not in yourself, because we're guilty, but it's in Christ, who on the cross endured God's judgment in your place. He is the only life raft to safety, enter and live, or remain and perish. But you've been warned. You've been warned. We come this morning to 2 Peter, chapter 3, where the Apostle Peter himself brings up this warning of judgment. For the past four months, we've been making our way through this book, the book of Second Peter, verse by verse by verse. And we're near the end today. So you can take your Bibles and open them to Second Peter, chapter 3. It's almost near the end. Just go to Revelation and just start going backwards. Second Peter, chapter 3. Before we finish this letter, though, we've got to make our way through... A heavy yet nonetheless important passage on nothing other than judgment. Now, I've got to say, it comes with the territory. When you go and preach through the Bible verse by verse, you just can't skip over things. You just can't skip over these verses. And some preachers, they like to give light and fluffy and uplifting messages all the time. And, and don't get me wrong, there's, there's a place for. The uplifting message, in fact, last week, you know, we need encouragement, but we also need warning, and we need these reminders, and that's what we will find this morning. We've seen this for weeks now, but specifically in Second Peter, Peter is writing to warn the church against the rise of false teachers, and these false teachers were denying a future judgment in connection with the return of Christ. They're saying, "Look, God is God's not going to judge you. Christ isn't coming back. Just go ahead, live as you please. It's fine." But this is wrong, and Peter writes to set things straight. He's got a dual purpose. To those who reject God, he says, "Be warned." He knows many will still ignore the warnings, but at least they're warned. But to those who trust in God, be encouraged. God has not forgotten you. Christ will return for you. And the end of all things is really just the beginning of your eternal life with God. Still, though, Peter's words as he nears the end of this letter, they're heavy words. Subject matter is serious, even a little bit gloomy at times, like a dark rain cloud. I think we know the coming judgment is not the most fun thing to talk about, but it is good for you. From time to time we need passages like this to remind us. You know, most people they like to go through life, you know, nice and distracted. Let's keep things light, let's not get too serious, let's not shake things up. But listen, you need to stop and think about eternal things from time to time. Although it's somber, it's good to think about death and what comes next. Listen to this, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 2 and 4, a little bit of God's wisdom from the Old Testament. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. The mind of the wise is in the house of Of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. In other words, what he's saying is it's it's better for your soul to go to a funeral than to a party. Why? Because you're being confronted with reality. There's nothing wrong with having a good time, but look, there's more important things in life, such as death and what comes after. We're all headed for it. The question is, are you prepared? And the warning signs are everywhere. They tell you what to look for. They tell you what's coming. They tell you what to do about it. The question is, will you heed them or not? And it's all about time. Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he tells us to consider our time on earth because our days are numbered. We're dealing with a limited time here. We've got a short amount of time now. Followed by an eternity after. And what you do with your time here affects your time there. So you better use your time here well. Then you better get this time right. And not everyone does. Some people, they want to spend all of their time in, as Solomon would say, the house of pleasure. Just going through life nice and distracted. But the warning signs are there for a reason. And just like Ecclesiastes, our passage in Second Peter 3 is telling us about the importance of time. It really is all about time. When you put time itself into its proper perspective, everything else in life makes sense and falls into place. And so we want to learn this lesson about time from Second Peter and we're going to do that now. From our passage, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-7, through 7, I want us to learn three lessons about time so that you may come to spend yours well. Three lessons about time so that you may come to spend yours well. And the first is this, from verses 3 and 4. It's a lesson from the present. A lesson from the present. Namely, there will be mockers. There will be mockers. And look at verse 3 with me. 2 Peter chapter 3. Look at verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Peter is speaking to the churches, to believers, and he has a message of first importance, a message warning believers what to expect in these last days. Last days is a technical term used in the New Testament by the writers to refer to this entire age, the church age, the last age before the return of Christ. This world has been completely dominated in every age by those who oppose God. And that continues now, but it won't continue forever. This is the last age before God's kingdom comes. It's called the last days. And still, we in the church must live through these last days for however long they last. And Peter does not want Christians to be unaware or caught off guard. False teachers will arise. We've learned that several times, right? Also, he says, there will be mockers. This is here his first lesson from time, from the present. There will be mockers. New Testament makes crystal clear that there will always be those who hate Christ, who hate those who follow him. They will slander, they will malign, they will persecute you in many shapes and forms. In fact, I want to show you this. Uh, it's only going to get worse, according to Scripture. And keep a finger in 2 Peter and just page backwards to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's not far at all. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Just go backwards a little bit. Most of you know, 2 Peter was Peter's last letter before his death. And he knew that his end was near. 2 Timothy was Paul's last letter before his death. And even more so, he knew he was going to die. He knew in a short time he was going to be executed in Rome. Why? For following Christ. That's it. But he was at peace because he had run his race well and he knew where he was going. But before he goes, he too wants to warn the churches and let them know what to expect as the days and years wear on. And look at this, 2nd Peter, or I'm sorry, 2nd Timothy chapter 3. And look at verse 1. From the end of his days Paul writes verse 1, but realize this that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, Disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men. As these. Lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. I mean, come on. Could there be any more prophetic words for our day today? And there's always been wicked people. Of course, always. But you tell me, do you agree with Scripture that it's going from bad to worse? Let's listen to this. Just this past month in Canada, an angry mother sent an anonymous letter to a neighboring mother who had a loud autistic child, causing a lot of noise in the neighborhood. And in this letter, this mother ranted about how this child was ruining the neighborhood and disturbing the peace with his, quote, animal noises. And then she goes on to say this. This all comes in an anonymous letter. She just dropped it in this other mother's mailbox. And let me read you an excerpt all quote quote he the autistic boy is a hindrance to everyone and will always be that way who the blank is going to care for him no employer will hire him no normal girl is going to marry or love him and you are not going to live forever personally they should just take whatever non-retarded body parts he possesses and donate it to science What else good is he to anyone? You had a retarded kid. Deal with it. What right do you have to do this to hardworking people? I hate people like you who believe just because you have a special needs kid, you are entitled to special treatment, end quote. And then she finishes the letter by saying this, quote, Do the right thing and move or euthanize him. Either way, we are all better off, end quote. Does this shock you? I hope it does, but what's really shocking is that more and more people, they're starting to think like this. This is actually becoming more and more common. People are becoming so selfish, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, that if anyone imposes on them, they just want to do away with them. I mean, they say, no, hey, why not kill the disabled, the handicapped, even the elderly? All they do is impose on me and my time, and I just got to take care of them. So just do away with them. And do you not see the world is heading from bad to worse? If you're still in 2 Timothy chapter 3, look at verse 12. He says, near the end, indeed, verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But, verse 13, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So wake up, Paul would say to you. And wake up, Peter would say as well. This is the age we live in. This is the last days, characterized this whole age. And learn to expect it's. Promised to get worse, and you can turn back to Second Peter chapter three now. And Peter would say specifically, learn also to expect mockers. Mockers are those who do not just poke fun at the truth, but they deride the truth. They slander believers. They revile God's word. Anything and anyone associated with God is in their crosshairs. Ultimately, though, Jesus is the target of their mocking. Jesus was mocked in his first coming. Do you remember? When Jesus came first, he willingly went to the cross. You all know that. But on his way, you remember the Roman soldiers took him and they dressed him up in a purple robe, a king's robe. And they gave him a crown, a crown of thorns on his head. And they proceeded to kneel before him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they beat him And spit on him as they bowed down, pretending to worship. Little did they know, however, that they truly were bowing the knee to their king. The king of kings and lord of lords. But they did this only to mock. But a day will come when these men will bow the knee again. Only in judgment. Now, however, there are those who mock Christ and Christians... Over the second coming. Notice, if you're back in Second Peter, verse 4, that they're not ignorant. These mockers know the promise of his coming. As you know, the Old Testament contains over 300 specific prophecies of the Messiah's first coming that were all specifically and literally fulfilled by Jesus. But there are even more prophecies of his second coming every new testament book except philemon and third john mention it the return of christ and these these false teachers they knew about this but they still mocked they said where where's the promise of his coming verse four mockingly they asked forever since the fathers fell asleep all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation what, what they're saying is you know, where is this god of yours there's been no judgment so far. life goes on just like always. If these people were alive today, surely they would point to the laws of nature. Look, nothing changes. There are no miracles. Everything just continues like normal. So if this God is real and he's going to judge, where is he? And Peter is going to address these mocking statements in the next few verses. We'll get there shortly. But at this point in this verse, he just says, look, Realize, understand, expect. People will mock. There will be mockers. And if you stick to the faith, you will be mocked as well. But first, can we ask this? Can we ask why? Why do they do it? Why do people mock? Not just sit silently or just disagree, but why have people mocked God and the truth since the beginning? And the answer is to silence their consciences. You see, it's really hard to enjoy a life of sin when your conscience keeps nagging you, telling you, hey, you're going to be judged for this. God is going to hold you accountable for what you do. There will be a day of accounting. I mean, that voice, it's such a buzzkill. So they have to suppress that voice. And mocking really helps. Mocking really helps. You have to realize that to unbelievers, the presence of morality functioning through a conscience is really quite bewildering. I mean, it really shouldn't exist according to their worldview. I mean, after all, if if all we are is just a bunch of evolved cosmic space dust, there shouldn't be such a thing as morality. Atoms don't know right from wrong. Outer space doesn't know right from wrong. Even animals don't know right from wrong. But here we are. All of us, moral beings with that little inner voice convicting us of wrongdoing. Where did that come from? And the conclusion, it's pretty obvious, God. But they just hate that answer. Because they don't want to live under God. At least not a righteous God. Not a holy God. Not a God who must punish sin. Not a God who has to. Won't look the other way. I don't want that because that confronts their self centered lifestyle. So they do away with God, they suppress their consciences, and they do this oftentimes through mockery. And what Peter is saying in all this is just look, learn to see through this. Just learn to expect this and see right through it. Peter lifts the curtain and says, just know, understand, be prepared. Mockers will come that they always have been here. And what are they following? Verse 3. They're just following after their own lusts. That's all they're doing. They reject and they mock because they love their sin. And that's it. When you understand this, their mockery will not so easily discourage your faith. And this is his first lesson. His first lesson from time, from the present, namely, this age that mockers will come. So expect it. It's a lesson telling you to wake up. It's a lesson telling you to watch out. It's a lesson telling you to expect this and to stand firm. Just to stand firm, even in the presence of those who mock. We move on now to a second lesson from time, a lesson from the past. Secondly now, a lesson from the past That the world is in God's hands. That's the second lesson from verses 5 and 6. The world is in God's hands. A lesson from the past. Peter doesn't want to just skip over what the mockers were actually saying. They were denying the truth. They were denying the second coming. They were denying the judgment. They are doing all of this in a mocking fashion. And they were even justifying their beliefs based on the fact that the earth just keeps on spinning. Their basic claim was that, look, God hasn't intervened so far. So why should we expect that he will do so in the future? But this is a huge oversight on their part. For God has intervened. Indeed, the entire world is in his hands. Look now at verse 5 in 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 5, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. These verses are useful for us, but they're really directed at the mockers. And the point, it's really simple. Yes, God has stuck his nose in the earth's business before. In fact, he created the whole thing and even destroyed it once. So you can be sure that he will intervene again. Peter brings up two monumental events from the past that demonstrate more than anything God's total control over the universe and his intervention in it, creation and the flood. For the false teachers to dare think that God would not judge was a costly oversight. Really, though, this is no oversight. Theirs was a deliberate denial of the truth. Now, it is true that the world we see ticks on in a largely uniform manner, an orderly manner. Our universe seems stable. It just runs like a, like a well-oiled machine. We don't see gravity reversing itself unexpectedly, where all of a sudden we float up in the air and crash back down. The sun doesn't suddenly turn off. The earth doesn't just suddenly spin off into space. Everything is ordered. In fact, even on the smallest scale, our universe is built on order. You may not know this, but in our universe, there are what's called the four fundamental forces. You ever heard of that before? These are four forces which explain how All matter exists and interacts. And these four forces, you've heard of two of them, the gravitational force, the electromagnetic force, the strong nuclear force, and the weak nuclear force. And the power and the proportion of these four forces in relation to one another, they're so finely tuned that if any of them were different or just in a slightly different proportion, it's not that life couldn't exist, it's that matter couldn't exist. There could be no atoms. Now, I know I can't take this much further. If I start talking protons, neutrons, and electrons with you all, I'm just going to bring up nightmares from high school, from physics class, so I'm not going to do that to you. And just trust me, or do your own research into these four fundamental forces. Just the amazing nature of these laws. Of nature, and they really are amazing when you see it all. But just know this, which the natural man fails to acknowledge, that nature's laws are true and they're amazing. But nature's laws are God's laws, they derive their order from his order. And contrary to the mocker, you don't get something from nothing, you don't get all of existence time, space, matter, the four fundamental forces. From nothingness. And to believe that takes way more faith than the truth. Namely, that God is behind the creation. Just as Peter says, it was God who created the heavens and the earth. With just a word, he spoke our existence into being. He did not work up a sweat during his creation, he just spoke because his power is in where? From last week. His word. Peter harkens back to the Genesis one creation account, where after creating the earth, God separated its waters. He pushed down the valleys, so to speak, raised up the mountains, creating a separation from land and sea. And who's to say that God is far off, and that He never intervenes? I mean, he created everything by a word. He created the world's order. By a word, He can overturn the world's order, and by a word. He can turn the world's order against us. That's That's exactly what he did in the flood, which Peter mentions next in verse 5 and 6. We've studied the flood before, this time of just total and global chaos and anarchy and violence and bloodshed, lawlessness, murder goes unpunished, just total vengeance on earth. Godlessness, the most wicked time ever. And so God judged. With a word, he he took that one element that's so essential to our life, and he made it the element of man's death, water. Man can survive three weeks without food, but just a mere three days without water. Second to oxygen, it is our life. Yet in response to the vast wickedness of man, God used water to bring about death. The flood from Genesis 6 was like an uncreation, where once again, just like at first, water covered the entire surface of the world. We've said this before, as I've mentioned, if the earth today even was completely leveled, where you brought everything to one level, the valleys raised up, the mountains squashed down, There's enough water on earth now to cover the surface two miles deep. So the water was there, and with a word, God spoke. The skies opened, the fountains of the deep burst open, and man's life source became man's demise. All this goes to say that God holds the world, and all that happens in his hands. Creation and the flood are proof positive that God owns the world. But you may still ask, well, where is he now? So where is he? Peter will answer that in the next few verses we'll come to see. But if there's a lesson to learn from the past, it is that God owns the world and he holds it in his hands. Know that. Believe that. Fear that. Take comfort in that. And God cares about the world. He will not let man's sin spoil his creation forever. Although God is always active, there will come a day when he will again, in a special way, break forth into our world. This time bringing an end once and for all to the world of the ungodly. And this leads to the third and final lesson from time now. third lesson, a lesson from the future Verse 7, a lesson from the future, the wicked will be judged. The wicked will be judged. Look at verse 7 with me. He says, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. After the flood, you may remember, God made a covenant with humanity that he would never again destroy the world in judgment by water. Remember that? But he never said anything about fire. And both the Old Testament and New Testament joined together unanimously to testify of God's intention to bring an end to this world, the world of sin once and for all, through Fire. But don't misunderstand. The end of this world is not the end of existence. It is instead the beginning of everyone's eternity. God washed the earth clean once with water, but nothing purifies quite like fire. And on the day of judgment, this universe will be destroyed only to be replaced by a new heavens and a new earth. Peter has more to say about this. We'll see it shortly. A little preview. Look at verse 10 in Second Peter chapter 3. Look ahead at verse 10. See this next week, but he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But, verse 13, according to his promise, we are looking for, for what? A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This picture that Peter paints of the end it's actually something that we can imagine now. We can actually envision this. I think the ancient man may have had a, a harder time, but, but look, we're in the atomic era, and it's not that hard to envision the world being consumed by fire. And we now know that in atoms themselves, the very building blocks of matter, there contains this incredibly destructive power. I mean, who would have thought that just by splitting the atom... You could release so much energy that it just literally incinerates everything around it. And who would have thought? So today we really can envision the end of the world by fire. Like the floodwaters, the elements of our own destruction are all around us. And they're just waiting. But nothing will happen until God says so. His word Determined the beginning of the world, and his word will determine the end of the world as well. And most people today actually believe, though, that the world's going to end. Most people believe this, but they think it's going to be some natural means a meteor from space, climate change, nuclear war. I think the most popular version right now actually is the zombie apocalypse. But the world's end will not be natural, but supernatural. God will bring about the end at a time only he knows. But when that time comes, it's not just the end of the planet. It is the end of man's rebellion against God. With the destruction of the world comes also the day of judgment, he says, in verse 7, and the destruction of ungodly men. This is referring to nothing other than what the Bible calls the great white throne judgment, that final, last judgment. When all who are not in Christ will be made accountable for their deeds and judged according to God's perfect standard. No one will pass through this judgment. Everyone who stands there before the throne is guilty And they will be cast out of God's glorious presence forever. It's amazing how much of what Peter says is exactly what John says at the very end of the Bible. Why don't you turn there now? This will be actually the last place we'll look at. Let's go all the way to the very end. Revelation chapter 21. The second to last chapter. And look at how similar these passages are revelation chapter I'm sorry chapter 20 and we'll read the first verse of 21 as well but look at revelation chapter 20 and this is the end this is the end of the line for this world at least and here's how it ends this is after Christ returns after the kingdom after the final rebellion you name it this is the very end verse 11 of chapter 20 This is John speaking of this vision. He says, "...then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds." And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is how it ends. For everyone, earlier in verse 10, Satan himself is thrown into the lake of fire. By no means is he the the king or ruler of hell. He is its chief prisoner. But the end is not the end. Look at chapter 20 and verse 1. The end is really a new beginning. Then, after this, John says, I saw what? A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Mockers make fun of the idea of hell all the time. They picture it as some sort of like wild party place. It's where all the fun people go. It's where you want to be. And have all these quotes like, oh, it's better to be a king in hell than a servant in heaven. But such quotes really are the height of foolish ignorance. And the ungodly who reject Christ will find a rude awakening. This is a lesson. This is a lesson from the future, it's a lesson of warning. Just like in the flood, the wicked will be judged. And what's amazing is how many parallels there are between God's first judgment in the flood and his final judgment here at the end. In both cases, just beforehand, the world was dominated by extreme wickedness. In both cases, the unrighteous mocked the righteous. In both cases, the wicked were warned and offered salvation. In both cases, the wicked rejected all warnings. And we're swept away. It's kind of like Jesus said. Remember? Matthew 24. He said, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, when it comes, it will be too late. And the wicked will be judged. But they are warned. So realize what Peter has for us here. It's, it's a serious message. It's a somber message. But it's also a loving message. Did you know that? When someone is in danger, the most loving thing you can do for them is to warn them. If you, if you see someone, they're floating down a river just casually, without a care in the world. But unbeknownst to them, they're actually headed straight for a deadly waterfall. The most loving thing you can do for them is to warn them. And then throw them a rope. Offer them a way of escape. And that is exactly what God has done for us in Christ. Everyone is on that path. Path of destruction. We're all headed for the waterfall There's nothing we can do to stop ourselves from plummeting over. We are lost. But God, in love, did something. He provided a means of escape, a means of rescue, just as with the flood. God offers an ark of salvation, and Jesus is that ark. Enter and live or remain and perish. You've been warned and you've been offered. Enter Christ and be saved. You now, why are we judged in the first place? I mean, what's with all this judgment stuff? Why? It's because of our infinite debt of sin that we've racked up before an infinitely holy God. And you can't pay back an infinite debt by just trying to be a good person, trying to be nice, living a good life. But Jesus on the cross, he paid that debt for you. Such that if you go to him, if you turn to him, if you follow him, if you humble yourself and acknowledge your huge debt of sin before the Lord, and you cry out to Christ to to save you as Lord and Savior, he will. That's all you have to do. He will have compassion on you and mercy on you, like we read in Psalm 103, and you will be saved. This is the only way of escape from judgment. Reject Jesus, though, and your doom is certain because there's no other way of not falling off the waterfall. He's the only means of escape. I think you all know that famous verse, right? John 3.16. But do you know what comes after it? You probably don't. Just listen. I'll read it for you. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17. Four. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, first time, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. But he who does not believe has been judged already. Because, why? Why? because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as as having been wrought in God. And here's the message. For those who have embraced Christ as Lord and Savior, be encouraged and take heart. For you, there's no condemnation. For you, there's no judgment. You have escaped in Christ. In fact, God has instead richly blessed you and for you, Eternal life waits. So, what do you do now? We just press on. Press on. Remain faithful. And as we'll see in the next week in Second Peter, use the little bit of time you have in this life to serve God and enjoy God as much as possible. That's it. That's what this life is for. It's all about time and the time you have. And for those who do not know Christ, though, the message is be warned. And for you, too, it's all about time. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. That's how it works. So enter the ark of Christ, before it's too late. We start off talking about the Titanic, how they famously war- ignored warning after warning of impending danger. I failed to mention one thing that the last warning they received of the icebergs came just 30 minutes before they struck the iceberg. There's a nearby ship, actually pretty close, called the Californian. They tried to send the Titanic one more warning, saying that they had stopped in the ice and that they were surrounded by a field of ice. However, at the time, the Titanic's radio operator, his name was Jack Phillips, he was extremely busy working the machine And he was sending out outgoing messages from the the passengers. He had a backlog of, of personal messages to send out. This was all by Morse code, mind you. But the Californian's warning message interfered with the Titanic's operator. So he messaged back. He interrupted. He messaged back. And he said this, quote, shut up, shut up, I'm busy, end quote, end of message. He had this one last urgent message of warning, and he ignored it. Phillips was so busy with life. He was so busy with, with work, nothing bad. He was so busy with the things of the world that he just didn't have time for the warning. and He ignored it. He ignored the final warning that could have saved his life. And instead, just shortly after, Phillips would die in the ice water. And no one thinks today is their last day. Everyone knows that they're going to die, but not today. But who knows? You too may only have 30 minutes left. And this may be your last warning. You've been warned. Turn from your sins. Humble yourself before God. Cry out to Him in Christ. Enter the ark of Christ and live. You'll be saved. Why don't you pray with me? Lord in heaven, we, we thank you for a word of warning. It's never, it's never pleasant or comfortable to talk about these things about the end of judgment. But nonetheless, it's true. And nonetheless, we need a word of warning. We do get caught up, Lord. We get distracted by the world, so full of, of things that distract and keep us occupied. Really, just keep us away from you. Remove the blinders and help us to see through them what this world is about, what this life is about. This is no mere accident. We are here to serve you, to know you, to enjoy you. That's only going to come through Christ. I pray for all of us that we may find our hope and our life in Christ alone, the one who came, lived, died, rose again, that we might be forgiven, justified, reconciled to you and we might know you forever. No one has to be judged. There is life given to all. I pray for all of us that we would heed these warnings, enter the ark of Christ, and live. Bless us as we go from here. Teach us to number our days. And with the little bit of time we've got left, Lord, may we serve you, enjoy you, and be busy about your work. It is in your name we pray. Amen.